It's Thursday, April 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher and JP Bennett. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. I'll, I'll start today's episode the way we started yesterday's episode. Everybody's taxes done? Yep. <laughs> not filed yet, but they are done. All right, good. We can move on because it's not it's not earnings palooza per se, but earnings season has begun. We'll talk a little Bank of America. We'll talk about what is going on with PC sales and just go ahead and and guess what's going on with PC sales. And of course, we'll dip into the full mailbag, but let's start with Delta Airlines. First quarter profits came in higher than expected. They're buying back stock. I feel like this is the type of quarter and this is the type of results and what we're hearing from management, Jeff, that if we weren't talking about the airline industry, the stock would be up more than 2% today. The airlines right now, Chris, are kind of like living a Shangri-La moment. Their profits are so inflated by low fuel costs. And for better or worse, they're spending the windfall. In in and I think because we don't know when this is going to happen <laughs> yeah. again. The better category, a lot of airlines, and there are only you know a small handful of major airline companies in the country now and the world, which is a good thing for the industry. But the majors are buying new airplanes, scheduling that out years ahead of time. They're increasing pay, and Delta and American have moved to profit sharing as well, so employees are benefiting. Uh, but while these costs are going up, the airfare is kind of holding steady or even going down a bit. So, revenue per passenger mile is down. It was down 5% this quarter, and it's been down the past many quarters. So, it's there's a lot of good here, but a lot that has Wall Street concerned, and that's keeping these stocks really, really cheap still. Is it really just all about the gas prices? Because I, I get that that has a beneficial effect, not just for Delta, but for all of these airlines. Well, with Delta, earnings were up 27% this quarter, to about 950 million, and about 700 million of that was from fuel savings. So a huge <laughs> amount is thanks to fuel. Okay, so yes is the answer to that. Yes, yes is the yeah, answer to that. It's basically all about the the fuel. But haven't and and JP, you're significantly younger than Jeff uh, and me. <laughs> uh, it's true. younger than I am. But um, in my lifetime, I feel like the airlines have gotten more efficient. I get the gas price. Mm-hmm. I get. I understand why that matters a great deal, but I also feel like they're just more efficient because I don't even remember the last time I was on a plane that wasn't almost, if not completely filled, it was 95% filled. Yeah, I can't really remember, except for like maybe a couple like red eyes where you're flying and there's like, oh, I can move to whatever seat I want. It seems like they're doing a much better job of kind of trying to max out that capacity whenever they get the the chance to do so. But that is true. And Chris and I were talking before the show about the late '90s, even early in millennium, where you'd have a whole row to yourself mm-hmm. no matter where you flew. I've flew from here, DC to Chicago, many times back and forth, where the plane was maybe a third full. Right. It, you could feel it was easier to take off. It's just like, oh, and we're <laughs> up in the air. We're so light. But the probably the best thing Delta's uh, CEO said is that if they don't start making more money, more revenue per passenger mile, that they will make adjustments to their fall capacity levels. Meaning they'll bring capacity down a little bit. And I think that's why American is up today and Delta as well. The airlines they were using their proceeds to go after market share, add new routes and whatnot. But there there have there's been a little bit more capacity added perhaps than is needed. And that'll probably 
dial back down, especially once fuel costs go up again. Too. I completely understand the trepidation on Wall Street about the airlines as an industry, but one of the pieces of the story last week with Alaska Air buying Virgin America was the fact that you had Branson, Richard Branson, talking about how tough it is for startup airlines to get gates. And and at the end of the day, this is, I mean, for, for all of its flaws, this is an industry with an incredibly high barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. And incredibly high costs, too. The gates are expensive. Getting, yeah, exactly, Chris, getting the routes that are profitable, uh, extremely difficult. And that's why all this consolidation has happened, too. And that's been a good thing for the industry. And that's what has me still believing that. <laughs> and JP laughs, and maybe rightly so. Usually I'm a skeptic. But in this case, I believe the airlines have learned and that there are few enough of them now that they can maintain profits. Now, they might be very slim profits when the economy turns or when fuel prices go up, when the economy turns weaker. Are you saying the magic four words? Are you saying this time is different? He is saying that. And it may not be indefinite, but it's at least for a time period. Like They learn the lessons of of the recent past, the recent most recent bankruptcies. So for the next, you know, handful of years at least things will be profitable. Now they might forget those lessons and make the same mistakes again, cycle again through, but hopefully not for a long time. First quarter profits for Bank of America down 13% compared to a year ago, but that was still slightly better than expected. You looked at the quarter JP, what yep. stood out to you for Bank of America. Um, the first thing that stood out to me is so if you go on a Bloomberg terminal, you can look at a chart of where they basically chart analyst estimates. And what you'll see is analyst estimates for this quarter over the past 12 months basically went from top left to bottom right. So they're down like 45% for over the past bank, for Bank of America. For this quarter, yep. The, uh, their earnings estimates for over the past 12 months fell by 45%. So yeah, they beat. But like you need to use some quotation <laughs> marks there, yeah. Um, so basically, what you had here was kind of like a a tale of two cities, right? So the consumer banking side, they did pretty good. What was it? Earnings for this uh, part of the business up twenty two percent to one point eight billion. Uh, they saw an increase in spending, an increase in deposits. But then you look at kind of the other part of their business. So you know, investment banking fees fell twenty two percent. Trading revenue down sixteen percent. And interestingly, they they had to, and perhaps not really all that surprisingly, they had to increase their provisions for credit losses for exposure to the energy markets by like around half a billion. So there really is kind of a tale of two tapes there. One side of business doing pretty decent, other side not nearly as much. Are we going to be? Is that a refrain we're going to be hearing from all the big banks about energy? Because it it certainly was the last time around we did earnings. I would say big and small banks if they have exposure to it. I think there probably are some some smaller banks that are probably a lot more heavily concentrated during the boom. They saw like all of this money. They kind of got a lot of exposure. Worked out great for a couple of years, and now you're. I think you're going to see some smaller banks be in a world of hurt. Yeah, I think the bigger banks, the one thing that they are doing right, whether it's Bank of America or J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, is getting more customers in the mm-hmm. door, and that's really what their focus is right now. Because they do have, as Bank of America pointed out, you have strong job gains in this country. You have increasing home prices. You have higher stocks. They mentioned, and you have the beginning of rising. Wages, so you do have a strong consumer, as JP just talked about, um, but you have low interest rates, and so you're not going to make much money there, and low commodity prices, of course. So what they're focused on is getting 
building customer relationships, getting the number of clients up, and then when interest rates do go up, the profits they'll earn even higher profits as a result. But right now, you can make pretty decent money on on a giant client customer base. Mm-hmm. And if you keep growing it, that's one way to slowly grow. Yeah, that that spread the net interest margin, spread the difference between what they get when they lend out money and what they have to pay out when people give them money. I mean, that's kind of not in their control, right? So it's good to see them focusing on what they can control, which is trying to gain additional clients. So if we ever do see rates move up again, um, then they'll be poised to kind of really benefit from that in a meaningful way. I almost hesitate to ask, but was there any mention? I don't know if they've had their conference call yet or not, but was there any mention of countrywide? Nope. And I, that abhor- there, no, there I no skimmed mention. it and I, I searched for that keyword and I didn't see it in okay. there. So. All right. Countrywide, a name they yes. would just like to forget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that absolutely. Goes that is on the Mount Rushmore of terrible acquisitions. Yeah, one of the mm-hmm. worst top three. Yeah. No question. I guess there's four on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. So top four. Top four. <laughs> I don't know what the other three are, but that's yeah. definitely in the yeah. top four. For the sixth consecutive quarter, sales of personal uh, computers have fallen. They are now down to levels last seen in the year 2007. Maybe not a surprise, but I have to believe that beyond the PC makers themselves, that among the companies not happy about this trend is Intel. Intel is down a little bit this morning as a result. And it's not a big surprise, but the size of the drop may be. It's estimated, the research shows, PC sales fell about 10% year over year. It's a big decline. Now, one reason is corporations are taking their time to switch over. As the Windows 10 software rolls out, which really fully that'll be later, the second half of this year. But the bigger problem, really, and by the way, Chris, total business IT spending is still predicted to go up this year. So if you're a technology investor, there's still plenty of money being spent on technology. It's still a growing industry. But PCs themselves, of course, it's households mainly, and it's mainly mm-hmm. emerging markets where, as we know, most listeners have heard the story before. Those new to the PC industry are getting in through a smartphone, mm-hmm. typically even more than even more than tablets, and certainly more than PCs themselves. It does what they want and need at a lower price point, and with bigger screen smartphones, it has convenience and a large enough screen to enjoy it. So, you know, I grew up. You and I grew up. PCs were the the way to enter the the computer world, and that's changed rapidly. And it, it has lasting repercussions. Yeah, and one thing I think um, I don't know if there's any research out there on it, but if you look in like developed markets, I feel like we've kind of gotten to the point where we really don't need. So, what was it historically? There was like a three or four year upgrade cycle um, for people who were like tech. It was a lot shorter, obviously, but we've kind of gotten to the point where um, the advances you're seeing really aren't having as big of an impact as they once were when you were younger. Where it was like if you kind of parallel this to what you saw in video game consoles. You go back to like the N64 and the Super NES. Like those those jumps uh, between consoles, there was a huge difference and so it made you want to upgrade. Now it's like, all right, I've got this Mac. It can it can run Excel fine. It can do, you know, PowerPoints. It can do Word. It can do everything I want it to do fine and it's going to be able to do that for like the next 10 years. Why do I really need to upgrade? Do I want a shinier, you know, a shinier MacBook with a better screen? Maybe, but kind of so the you, drive to so upgrade. So you can have processing speeds that are eight percent faster. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, That's a great point. The difference is used to be mm-hmm. 
And you, and you saw it with like uh, video game consoles, like the top selling consoles are all those older ones because there was such a huge jump, the latest generation, like the Xbox One, the PS4 and stuff like that. They really haven't been selling that well. And I think to a certain extent, it's because kind of the change in, you know, why do I need to upgrade now? I mean, I want maybe newer video games, but there isn't like as big of a difference as there once was between generations. Yeah, one bright spot in the report is for Apple shareholders, where market share went up again. They grew sales estimated by about 1%, their PC sales, I should say, year over year. So that's pretty good. They're now the fifth largest in market share at, at about 7%. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Listeners continuing to email about uh, next week when we hit our 1,000th episode. From longtime listener Bill King, congratulations. A few things that come to mind over the past few years. The origin of the Uncle Joe Mager nickname. Jeff Fisher's self-depreciating comments about the exciting world of options and his life in general. <laughs> Yours and Jason Moser's love of things brewed, distilled, or fried. That's a good summation of, that is, that of the show. Is a good summation. Uh, from Peter Moak, I've been listening since 2014, but my most vivid memory is from just last December when Bill Barker ruined Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by pointing out how much of a jerk Santa Claus was. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. And from Michael in Massachusetts, a huge preemptive congrats on your thousandth episode next week. I've heard everyone, and I can definitely say you got me safely through three deployments and countless cardio sessions. I enjoyed your free services so much that I recently became a Supernova member, and my dad and I enjoy discussing your recommendations while building our investment portfolios. Thanks for all that you do. I did have a quick question. As a new employee of a Fortune 100 company, I've heard that you should not invest additional money into the stock of your own company, since so much of your financial health is already tied in the form of salary and bonuses. Is there any point at which you would condone shorting your company's stock as a hedge, and especially if you see the stock as frothy? I know you don't recommend shorting, but I'm still interested in your opinion. P.S. The new Wynn Boston Harbor Casino Hotel in Everett is less than four miles from the city of Boston. Come on, Chris. He's right. He is right to call me out, because I got that wrong last week when Bill Barker and I were talking about that. In my mind, Everett was much further to the northwest of Boston. In fact, it's it's just across the harbor. Right. Um, Jeff Fisher, you're someone who actually, on occasion, has been known to recommend shorting a stock. Mm-hmm. Yes, JP, too. We yep. short stocks in Motley Fool Pro pretty much regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, to Michael's question, shorting your own company stock, which when I first read it, I thought the one of the first thoughts that went through my head was, well, you can't do that if you're an officer of the company, that's illegal. But then I checked with actual lawyers who work here at the company and they reminded me that no, that's not illegal. But of course, if you're an officer of the company, it does show up on public filings, which would look pretty. I love that. That'd mm-hmm. look pretty bad. <laughs> Worse like, than yes. selling, you're shorting. Your right, own company. The, the chief operating officer of such and such a company <laughs> <laughs> in the quarterly filings. Oh yeah, I'm shorting half a million the shares. CFO shorting shares. Yeah. Um, well, to Michael, thank you. Three deployments. That's that's outstanding. Yes. Thank yep. you for that. Um, goes without saying, almost, but. Uh, Thank you. As for the question, I it, it smacks a little bit of speculation to me. If you're shorting because the stock looks frothy, uh, because so many stocks look frothy for so long, whether it's Amazon or, or Starbucks, speaking of froth, or... Nice. <laughs> I had to get one bad, bad pun in there. And so, you, 
you don't know what the socket's going to do next, of course. Mm-hmm. And shorting when it runs against you is increasingly painful. You know, when you make a mistake buying a sock, of course, it it, it, it becomes less painful the, the more it falls. You're losing less and less. But shorting works the opposite way, and it, the decision to close it gets harder and harder because it's more and more costly to close it. So I wouldn't short just based on valuation. We we short stocks based on a business that we think is in decline or destined to fail even. Mm-hmm. Uh, or as a hedge, as Michael mentioned, to some other industry or company that we have exposure to. But I, I something about my outlook on this question is I, I wouldn't be comfortable shorting the stock of the company where I, I work. Instead, I'd be, if I have too many shares of it, I'd steadily try to sell that down to an allocation that I'm comfortable with. At the same time, recognize that you can, and probably will if your company is generous enough, own a larger amount of shares in your company than, than your other holdings. That that tends to happen. And so, if it is a larger part of your portfolio, that can be okay. You know the company very well. and. Uh, you know, manage it accordingly. Um, yeah, I was just going to say this is actually gives me a perfect opportunity to put to use all of the years I spent studying for the CFA, right? So technically, <laughs> what this is called, it's it's actually has a name. It's called like a short sale against the box. And I know against back the box against the box. Okay, um, it's another name. I don't. I'm sure there's a story behind it. No clue where it came from. Uh, I know in the '90s it was a way that was commonly used to kind of hedge out a position and earn the risk-free rate without having to like have tax implications. Um, say you had like restricted shares, but you already had a huge you know percentage of your wealth tied up in that and you couldn't sell them right away. You could set that up, kind of hedge out that part of the portfolio and then sell it whenever need be. But I would say um, I know there were changes, so you need to consult with a tax ex- expert because I think there are now tax implications where if you set this up, there's another name I forget what it's called now offhand, but it it may be taxed like as soon as you set it up because it's essentially like selling the shares, right? Um, so you gotta you definitely have to consult with a tax expert. Um, but like Jeff said, it's doing it just solely based on kind of your gut feeling for the valuation may not be the best call, but you are thinking about it in the right way in terms of you now work for this company, you have basically your entire human capital, what you're going to expect to earn going forward, tied up in this company, it makes very little sense to also have like a huge chunk of your financial capital tied up in this company as well. You want to kind of try and diversify those two bases. So you're thinking about it in the right way. Maybe speak with a financial planner or a tax expert just to make sure you you make the right decision for you. If for some reason maybe you got he got a huge grant, but those are restricted for a little while and he can't sell them. So yeah, and I. I Failed to see the big advantage to shorting as opposed to just selling down some of your shares because when you short, mm-hmm. it'll just cancel out some of the shares you own. But, yep. You know, you're still. It's kind of a net net same thing. Uh, before we wrap up, the pro service that you run is open to new members only a couple of times a year. I think the last time was six eight months ago. It it is open. Uh, now for a short time for for those who are interested we have a microsite uh, if people are interested it's free to go and just sort of kick the tires you can go to trypro.fool.com i'll include the url in the description of this uh, episode but for people who are interested in pro g- give me the the 30 second 
thumbnail description on the Pro service. All right. So Motley Fool Pro launched in 2008. It's a real money portfolio. It started with $1 million. It's about 2.2008. Great time to start investing. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yep. It's now about $2.5 million, and we are a focused portfolio of companies that we really believe in. We have about 30 holdings, actually fewer right now. And so our number one job is to buy really strong companies that we think will grow our money nicely for the years to come. Number two job is to short and hedge short weak failing companies as a as a hedge against a falling market or a falling stock and hedge our portfolio exposure so we have less volatility. That's kind of our our mandate. Uh, so for instance, Chris, we've been 72% net long the past four or five years on average. Yet we've made 110% of the market's return, so it's a it's a really good result if you can get it with less volatility and less risk. We have less market risk risk than someone who's 100% invested, but we're still getting the returns historically. Uh, number three, we use options to create income, leverage our upside, hedge at times, hedge quite a bit with options actually. So it's a it's a fun service that I think our goal is to generate strong returns, but also teach you how to be a better investor, and as a result of that, a calmer, more confident investor with, with more tools in your toolbox, as we say. And uh, We try to have profits, whether, whether the market's going up, flat or down, we want at least some of the portfolio making profits in any of those scenarios, and that makes investing more fun, too. More importantly, it makes you calmer and better able to make good decisions. The sleep factor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Never forget the sleep factor. Uh, you can check out the microsite. As I said, it's free. You can go to trypro.fool.com. There are a bunch of videos there, um, some some trades as well. Yes. Yeah, there are three free reports there, and they all include trades uh, ideas, uh, writing put options for income on a giant bank. Speaking of banks, uh, a hedge that we commonly use in pro on the S and P 500 index. Just to hedge some of our market exposure, it's a hedge that doesn't have out-of-pocket costs, and if the market goes up, it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it's no drag. It's a no-drag hedge using options, and we also have three pro stocks in a report detailed for you: three that we own and, and why we own them. So there's a lot on that site. There's a lot of stuff there. All right, yeah. check it out if you're interested. Trypro.fool.com. J.P. Bennett, Jeff Fisher. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. She complicated. Katie, left me a mule to ride.